So it's not the truncated version, it's Isaiah 43, 1 to 13, so maybe... So, in this bit, Isaiah tells us about Israel's only saviour. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory and whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind and who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the people assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is the word of the Lord. During my ministry, and um, that's been for many years now, as you can see, I'm only about 30 now. Um, when I began my ministry, ever since then, during the, the time of preaching through a year, I would, just from time to time, take this difficult theme of suffering, not because I want people to feel morbid, but because it's a real thing, and it's happening around our world. When you think of what's happened, for example, in the last few weeks, when you think of the news that we're hearing of, of floods and of earthquakes let alone some of those 
you know, I don't think I've ever been through a time when there's been as many car accidents or not accidents as we're facing in Sydney at the moment, where people's lives are torn apart by the reality of what's there. So this Sunday, I'm turning to Isaiah. It's in the middle of a section in Isaiah, chapter 43. Um, I want to remind you that the people of God, that's the people of Israel, they knew what it was to go through a time of difficulty, a time of challenge, a time of darkness, a time when things were not all that they wanted them to be. God's people have been taken from their homeland. Now, there's a, a, another reality. We, we live at a time when many people are living in places because they've been taken from something familiar and placed into something that's very much unfamiliar. And there are many people experiencing that. Their identity was tied up with their land. And how true that is. I saw only very early this morning, it was early this morning with that extra hour, uh, pictures of people that were leaving their land and going to another land and queuing in their cars. To lose where you come from, just imagine for a minute if we were taken from Australia and taken to some place and knowing what it is to go there and lose our identity to do with where we lived. Now, when I read the Old Testament, that kind of experience was a very real one, one that people knew something about in their own lives. In essence, they've been taken from the familiar. We know what the familiar is, don't we? The familiar are those things that we don't need to be reminded about. They, they flow naturally to top of head. There's something at the top of mind uh, a part of our daily living. They're part of our experience. But there were times when people were taken from that. I don't know how many of you watch Who Do You Think You Are, that television program. You always know that they're going well because when they're, they're on in Britain, they start stealing it here and using it here. And now they are. We're finding Australian people now are facing exactly the same challenge. Who do you think you are? And people have to search into their backgrounds to see something of their past and begin to identify with it in a very real sense in their lives. I remember uh, one famous actor who, who came uh, to the UK as a Huguenot. And he came to London, and he didn't know anything about his uh, past uh, apart from that. Who's the person I'm thinking of, Carol? Derek Jacobi. Remember Derek Jacobi, the actor? He didn't know, he just knew that his home was in France. And he's a great actor, as you know, and not only a Shakespearean actor, he's a great actor in so many fields. And there comes the point where he, he's going around Paris, and he finds that where he was brought up in London, in, in a place called Hackney, that there was a Huguenot school and hospital there. And that was important for him as a little boy. But he goes back to Paris, and he finds out actually that he's related to the hierarchy of France. And there's this lovely moment in the middle of it where he, his face lights up. He said, I always knew I was important, he said. <laughs> it was a real sense of discovering something of his past. Past matters. The children of Israel understood that because their past was what made them who they are today. Now, Isaiah, if you've got the time to study the book of Isaiah, can be helpfully... Uh, put into three sections. 
the, the three sections are important. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are there. And then you get to chapter 40 through to 55. And then there's the final section. And if you've ever listened to Handel's Messiah, you'll remember when the soprano stands and rises and sings, Comfort ye my people. That's when it begins, chapter 40. That real sense that God is going to comfort these people despite and irrespective of their experience at this present time. You see, a generation of people grew up knowing little of their past identity, little of what made them who they are. They were deprived of temple worship. When we talk about Israel, if I put you all into groups and said, tell me what you know about the, the children of Israel, what do you remember about them, it won't be long before somebody talks about the temple. It was so important. And, but they didn't have the temple when they were in a foreign land taken away from it. They were robbed of some of those things that made sense to them. They were robbed of those things that gave them identity. And it was during that time that the synagogues were built for the very first time because the children of Israel and their leaders decided, well, we, we haven't got the temple. We need somewhere where we need to worship together as a people. And so the synagogues were built. They still enjoyed a measure of freedom. They knew what material prosperity was to a degree. But they hoped always for restoration. They hoped always for the day when they would be able to be free again and to go back to what was familiar. As we prepare for the possibility, and I'm very conscious of this, aren't we? Uh, they've been doing it where we live uh, because we don't live too far from the bush now. Um, we know we have to be told what to do in case of an emergency. And so the people of God knew all about that. They knew they had to be ready. They had to be alert. They had to be prepared. So there's a number of questions that I ask myself when I put that into the context of suffering and see it through the lens of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. So see it through that lens and ask some questions about it. And the first question is this. Should Christians suffer? Well, you'd have no answer to that, wouldn't you? Well, would you? Are there not many people who struggle with that question? And they struggle with it because they practice a kind of religious life that would really say Christians ought not to suffer. So when suffering knocks on the door of their lives, they find the whole thing difficult to handle. The truth is, should Christians suffer? Well, they do. And we have to, I think, living in the light of Christ, we have to live through the prism of faith and, and, and all that that means and say to ourselves, we need to be a people who have to face that reality. During the last uh, 15 years of my active ministry, when I was in the center of the city, I used to, with the, 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 the not lifeline, but life force, our work, our suicide work, I used to go to the cities around Australia and we'd hold services. When we were in Brisbane, we were always uh, in the middle of the city there when we would go to different places around the, around the country. And, you know, we always gave people the opportunity to come forward for prayer and to share with us their experiences. And probably about 150 people would attend the ones here. Many, many more, probably about four or 500 at the Opera House. But when we met together, People would share their stories. And it was amazing how many church people came forward. 
to talk about their experience and their sorrow and their pain and the hurt that had been part of their experience. So when I am faced with that question, should Christians suffer, I have to say they do. And sometimes people more or less said something like this. I'm, I'm making these words up now, but they sum up what people were saying. Oh, I find it difficult at church to talk part of my life. My father took his own life. My, my mother was killed in a terrible accident. And they pour out the pain of their own lives, and they struggled with it as Christians because there were many that kind of had a look. It was okay for a week or two to grieve, but they didn't really understand that grieving is in the deep subterranean parts of our lives and, and, and eats away at our lives. And it needs to be something that we deal with. Some would argue this. If we have the right level of commitment to Jesus Christ, and if we have all the faith that we ought to, then there's no way that we can suffer. Well, not only is it nonsense, it's very painful to take that view. It makes people feel somehow that they are inadequate, that in their own lives, suffering has knocked on the door. You'll notice that when in this passage it was read to us, and it was read so well a few minutes ago, we have that passage that talks about passing through the waters. It doesn't say, if you pass. It says, when you pass. When? Almost as though there's an inevitability about it. Don't think this is not going to happen, because it may, in one form or another. Our suffering varies. Of course, there are many people who suffer. It's very difficult when you deal with this theme. Some suffer through life, through, through different kinds of illness of the body. But for some, suffering might be very different. There are those whose suffering has come from broken relationships. There are some that have walked the journey of suffering, knowing that sorrow is difficult to bear, because it's knocked on their door in a very different way. People who had a very sound job, and suddenly it was taken from them. Some who were struggling to, have, to deal with income and the lack of it. Some struggling to deal with life where we live. Oh, our, our, our life is going well until that man moved in next door to us. Oh, no, no, I hope this isn't anybody here, but it may be. And you realize that suffering can take on a whole host of various different things in people's lives. Interesting, fire and flood, isn't it? I always think this should be the Australian passage, really. This is about fire and flood. They were two very real, pertinent experiences for the children of Israel. They knew what it was to experience fire. They knew what it was to be overcome by flood. And we do. And we have seen it. Not that long ago, before going to Kunabarabran, we went north to help uh, some of the people, uh, their minister, and actually got, um, was very sick, really, and uh, he had leukemia. And so he couldn't, for a number of weeks, preach it all at Easter. So I said, the, the, the synod said, would you go up? And I said, yes, I'll go up there, not far from Lismore. And we walked through Lismore, and we met the people in the churches there, that some that don't have churches anymore. Lismore was terrified uh, because of the experience that they went through and in some of those small towns there. And uh, when we shared together on Easter Day in one of the, the smaller towns there, we had about 150 at church. It was very exciting, really. 
And we tried not to focus upon what had happened. And I remember somebody coming out of the church and collaring me at the church, as it were, to said, this isn't the first time this has happened, you know. So although she was disturbed by what had happened, it didn't finish her. She realized these things happen. And they've happened to us again, is how she'd seen it. So there are many different ways in our Australian landscape and in our individual lives where suffering is real. When, for one reason or another, reduced possessions, reduced means can cause its own pain. When personal disappointment overtakes us. When somebody we love and care for in our own family hurts us. It's all very difficult, this stuff. I've got to say to you, these minutes now I'm talking are not easy minutes, but they're real. They're real parts of our experience. And the failure of those that we've looked to and expected good from, and they let us down. When bereavement has thrown a dark uh, cloth over our lives in some way, Christians are not taken out of the world. I think sometimes... uh, People would like it to be like that. If I could just be taken out of the world for a while, while all this suffering's going on, and then I'll come back when things are better. But you can't have it that way. Because we live in the reality of the world in which we're set. And here what we find in Isaiah is the reality of a people of God who knew what it was to suffer, who knew what it was to go through difficult days. Let me tell you about... um, the Women's Institute in Yorkshire. That's like the country women's. Well, let me tell you a story about one particular Women's Institute. Well, it's an important story, but I must take you to the Methodist Chapel across the road. Because at the Methodist Chapel there, their steward died of leukemia. And his wife was a member of the Women's Institute. And if you've ever seen the Calendar Girls, that's the real story of somebody who believed that somehow she wanted to raise lots of money to help with leukemia, somebody who believed in faith, who had a real walk with Jesus Christ. And you remember, she goes to the Westminster Central Hall in London and appeals to all these very proper, and I hope you're not in the country women, you're going to be upset with me, aren't you? You never invite me back again. But they were very proper people. And uh, she asked for their help. And we know the rest. Of course, you don't, not many of you have seen the calendar girls, so you won't know what I'm talking about, will you? At all? Yes, you do. <laughs> they made a calendar. But it wasn't the calendar that was important. It was that they believed that this experience that had torn the heart out of an individual. Their senior steward in a church of only 20 people had died of leukemia. They were absolutely devastated. But they believed somehow in the midst of that suffering that they could find hope. On the 8th of November, 1987, in Northern Ireland, something happened. It was just one week before I was preaching in Belfast. And uh, when I was preaching in Belfast, the whole of the Northern Ireland community was walking a very, very difficult road. Because in the town of Enniskillen, which is not that far away, really, they'd had an explosion, a bomb that had been set by the IRA, if you remember, in the town centre there. 
And it was on Remembrance Sunday, which was on a Sunday, not just on the 11th, but was on the Sunday nearest to it, on the 8th of November, 1987, lots of people were killed. And Mary was a girl who was only just 23 or 4, and she worked at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast, which is a specialist hospital that deals with skin and, 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 and damage that's done to the body. Well, great damage was done to her that day. And her father, Gordon Wilson, who later became a member of the Irish Parliament, Gordon was in the crowd that day, and he held his daughter while she died. Later that day, the, B the BBC, the Irish um, media, took hold of all this, and he was prepared to talk to them. And I remember the impact that Gordon Wilson had when he told the BBC, I am wanting to forgive the people who did this to my daughter. People thought it was outrageous. Outrageous that he should offer forgiveness to somebody who had killed his daughter by six o'clock that night. The invitation to find Christ can be very real. Do you know, I remember one, one experience here in Sydney. On a Sunday night in the Wesley Theatre, we sometimes ask people to come forward and kneel if they had a real need. And I don't think I'll forget when, when a, a, a young woman came forward and she knelt alongside others. And I, I had an arrangement with stewards and colleagues that women were dealt with by women just the way I thought it ought to be. Well, I dealt with the people I was praying with, but I could still see this woman there, and some of our stewards were stood with her. And they gave me a kind of uh, Methodist chapel look. They were communicating something to me. And I tried to interpret their memoing, and I realized in the end what they said was, want to talk to you afterwards. And they told me that... The woman who came forward wanted to talk to me. And I was prepared to do that with one of the stewards there. And then I heard the story. She'd come to Australia. She'd come here and was a refugee. And she lived here. And for many people, they, they disregarded her, but she got herself a job in a restaurant. And the person who owned the restaurant said, um, you've got a room upstairs for your wages, and next to nothing else. Well, this is the adult bit of the story. She was raped by him many times. She was abused by him physically and mentally. And she but the trouble was, she didn't want to talk about it because there were things about her being in Australia that were very dodgy. So what could she do in that situation? Well, fortunately, we were able to help and we were able to find more friendship with the police than she thought she could find and more help from other people. But suffering is happening every day. I would be very shocked if within 500 metres of here there are not people who are suffering in one way or another. That's very real. You can hardly talk about it. It's part of their experience. So that's the first question. And it's a very real one. Why are we surprised then? Why does transformation take us aback? If 
Van Sapner, reflecting on the positive outcome that comes as a result of suffering, said this, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It takes the broken, broken alabaster box to bring forth perfume. And it's Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns in greater power than ever. So secondly, where is God when Christians suffer? The first was a question that we might have struggled with. But where is God when people struggle? Because uh, whether you're a pastor or a Christian leader or a friend, you find that question, it may be dressed up differently. You may be asked, where's God in the middle of all this? And I think that's a fair question to ask. Not to find a simple answer to it, but at least to recognize that that's part of the pain. But here's something for the preacher to say. God is often nearest the hearts that are broken than those of us that are confident. There's often an experience that people have in places of pain and sorrow and suffering that leaves them broken. And yet recognizing that God, God is at the bedside of dying men and women. We may sometimes be unaware. When it's Remembrance Sunday in a church, I've always been conscious, Remembrance Sunday could be Anzac Day, so it could ha have its kind of illusion there. And when I was minister of a large suburban church, I used to ask specific people if they would read the lesson on that day. Now, I had a man called Bobby. Bobby worked for the local authority. He was a very, very great man. He was, he was lovely, really. He, he worked in the church. He did all kinds of things for him. I said, Bobby, I've got you down on the reading for, for Remembrance Sunday. Oh, no, 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 I couldn't read then. I thought, this is the strangest thing. Bobby always wanted to read. Then he told me the reason why. He told me he was in a ship and the English Channel that was bombed. And that for days he knew what it was to be in that ship and to then be on pieces of wood and planks trying to survive. And this seaman had a great lump come to his throat as he described that experience. The reason why he didn't want it is because he knew very well what the lesson might be. He knew the preacher might choose Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Not that he didn't believe it, but it was real for him. God had been with him in the midst of the suffering. So his three days in the English Channel had made such an impact upon him. Isaiah 43 begins with the words, but now. Now, whenever you read words like that, you want to look over your shoulder and say, what's gone before? But now. In the previous section, there's a somber reminder of judgment. But now, even when we're going through difficult times, there's a sympathizing presence, I think, that's here. I will be with you. Sympathizing presence is important. If you want to be helpful and pastoral and caring towards somebody, go and sit with them and recognize that's what God does, exactly that. He doesn't make it easy. He doesn't wipe it all away. 
but he often sits with people through their difficult experience. I will be with you. And God is with us. Trusting power. The rivers may rise, the fire may come, the experience may be dramatic, it may tear our lives apart, it may give us much to be fearful of, but we can trust him. And then there's a sustaining presence. Sometimes we need that, don't we? Sustaining presence. To know that whatever we're going through, we're going to come through it. And it's hard really, but it's true. The fire may rage, but faith and love will not fail us. The ultimate security for the Christian doesn't rest on the basis of nationality. Many of the Jews might have thought that. It doesn't rest on the basis of who we are or what we are or what we've been through in life. But the real truth is sustaining grace is with people in the challenge. Paul Claudel was a French poet, a dramatist, and a diplomat. He was a devout Christian. And he wrote this. Christ did not come to do away with suffering. He didn't come to explain it. He came to fill it with his presence. And I like that. That's what he's wanting to do. Not to wipe it all away, not to say, this is how we can explain it, but to say, in the midst of it all, he will be there with us. Then the third, why does God suffer? If we've acknowledged that God is there, why does God suffer? This question may seem curious to us. For how could an omnipotent God, a God who has been with us for all time. How is it that he can suffer? And when I think of some of the people who've been, either we have a friend who, who we have been friends with for many years, and her family put her in a boat in Vietnam, passed to the boat, and a grandma and mother never saw for many, many, many years. She went to Hong Kong like many did first before they came to Australia and other places uh, in this part of the world. And I just find it incredible that God can be with people through such experiences. The one who is Alpha and Omega, the one who is the beginning, the end, the one who speaks with clarity into our pain can be with us even in the most difficult of circumstances. The mystery of the cross and the reconciling work of God is that he shares our pain, the anguished cries of our heartache, the unspeakable agony of the spirit. Our God has not only created all people, but clearly demonstrates his love for all people, even when they suffer. In some unfathomable way, God suffers with us. I, I find that the best thing I can say to people. It's not to say, you're going to be all right, but to say, God is with you in this. This pain and this suffering and this sorrow that you're journeying through, God is with you in that experience. And whether you're at home or here in church today, if you've been through that experience and know something of what that means to go through those, those difficult times, you know, God is with us. For me, I find one of the most remarkable and helpful things that I can do 
In some unfathomable way, God is suffering with us. In the Old Testament, we, re we read so clearly, don't we, about Daniel's friends in the incinerator who knew what it was to suffer with him. The king expected them to collapse in a moment. No one could survive such heat. Although their robes were burnt off, their flesh remained unscarred because God does with people. The language of Isaiah 43 has all kinds of metaphorical images wrapped up in this, this flame and this, this wonderful experience of being released through the flame to something better, through the flood that could easily take people's lives. The whole section of Scripture here points to a God who saves us. There are times when we struggle to explain the story of a nation. I remember being in Southern Africa, in South Africa. And um, I went to see the man who had responsibility for the churches at that time. This was just after, only a relatively short time afterwards, that the great time of, of liberation came to, to a people there. And this man, clearly a very strong member of the black community of Southern Africa, was thrown into prison. But it wasn't the usual prison. He was simply thrown into a small cell in a police station. And he tells me, he's still alive today, that for two years he was in that cell and his wife was only five hundred meters from the police station. She didn't know where he was. The local Methodist church knew what it was to provide food and help and support. And he told me some things of the dreadful treatment that he went through in that particular station. But God was with him. He was conscious of it. He could have given up. He could have given in. He could have decided, this is the end of my, through my suffering, I have nothing else to live for. But he had a wife and he had children and God was with them in that difficult place. It's controversial, but it's demanding. Many rootless people, that's what it must have been like for many of the people of Israel, rootlessness. We talk about it today. To be rootless, to, to be taken away from what gives you meaning, taken away from those things that give purpose to your life. I, I often have... Um, use theological books to help people. I'm going to turn now to one of the great theological books for me. It's called Charlie Brown. And let me tell you about Charlie Brown. Linus and Charlie Brown are walking down the street chatting to one another. And Linus say, I don't like to face problems head on. I think the best way to face problems is to avoid them. In fact, this is a distinct philosophy of mine. No problem is so big or so complicated that I can't run away from it. And you know that's how some people have had to deal with the difficult things of life. When we turn the, the chapters in Isaiah just on that little bit to the 53rd chapter, we read about the suffering servant, the one who knew what it was to die 
in our place. And for me, when I think of the, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the wonder of the gospel, when I think of what might be inspirational to you this morning here in Bondi, think about Christ who suffered for you. When I was at a point of need in my own life, I was directed by a friend to Henri Nguyen's wonderful book, The Wounded Healer. A friend gave it to me and said, read that, that will do you good. And I did. And I conclude with these words, which I hope you find as helpful as I did when I first read them. The Master is coming. Not tomorrow, but today. Not next year, but this year. Not after all our misery is past, but in the middle of it. Not in another place, but right here where we are standing. I don't know what your experience is this, this morning, but whatever it is that you're facing in your life, be absolutely certain of this, that the God of love that spoke to a children thousands of years ago and made them as a people conscious of his presence can be with you and give you strength and peace and help. Amen.